Okay, so two North Korean businessmen walk into a bank in Congo. So they walk into a bank in the city of Lubumbashi, the mining commercial hub of the country. They slap down their North Korean passports and the reason for which they were in the country to build statues and architectural works. And they said, hey, can I have a U.S. dollar bank account? And they got it. But pro tip, opening a U.S. bank account for business violates sanctions for most North Koreans. Yeah, according to sanctions, international sanctions, there are only very rare circumstances under which a North Korean can gain access to banking services outside of North Korea. Building statues is not an exception. In fact, North Korean statue building has its own sanctions. The sanctions against North Koreans building and providing statues to UN member states. What is happening with North Korean statue building? And why has George Clooney's NGO caught the attention of the UN who are trying to get it stopped? I'm Kevin Hurton, in for Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. And this is John Deloso. My name is John Deloso. I'm a senior investigator for The Century, which is an NGO that traces illicit financial flows in Central and East Africa. The Century was co-founded by George Clooney to chase down illicit funds being used for war and violence. And let's just say The Century's co-founder gets a lot more attention than the people operating illicit financial flows that John's been investigating. These guys were operating in a much more kind of below-the-radar way than most other companies that we followed. Today, we have a story of North Korean artists, a mid-sized mining town in the Democratic Republic of Congo, a couple of bank accounts, and major international sanctions violations that just keep happening over and over again. So, John, tell me how this investigation got started. Somebody basically tipped us off and said, there's a North Korean-owned company operating in the Democratic Republic of Congo, the DRC. And then we got the documentation, and lo and behold, it said these two guys were born in Pyongyang. So it seemed like it was something worth pursuing. John's an Africa guy, though, not a North Korea guy. And initially, statue building sounded more like fine art than illicit finance. Not exactly his thing. But fortunately, one of my colleagues has looked at North Korean statue building in the past and slapped me upside the head and said, no, this is actually important. And I'm glad I paid attention because it turns out it was. Statues in North Korea are kind of a big deal. Yeah, exactly. I was skeptical because in the end it's statues. But I got a bit of an education. North Korea's Mansude Studio, known for its Soviet-style monuments and statues, has already installed several gigantic monuments in many African countries. In exchange for $27 million to build a statue, North Korea received a piece of land in Senegal. They're apparently scoring big bucks, especially in Africa, exporting giant statues. That's right. If there's one thing that the North Koreans are good at, it's cranking out real-life depictions of dictators that are so tall they can be seen for miles away. Haven't heard of North Korean statues in Africa? They're all over the place. North Koreans are trying to generate money abroad because their avenues for doing so are fairly constricted by sanctions. And one of the ways that North Korea has done that is through building statues. Very large, imposing, 
shiny bronze statues that look like they were plucked out of the streets of Pyongyang and, and dropped in Namibia or even the DRC. John, would you say it's fair to say that authoritarian statues are to North Korea what modular furniture is to Sweden? <laughs> I think so. I will say it's a little bit easier to obtain modular furniture from Sweden, but they do have something in common. The price is just really unbeatable. It's hard to turn it down. You won't find any big blue box stores selling these statues, though, which makes keeping up with these statue builders tough. These guys were moving around fairly discreetly, I would say. So the way we ended up trying to follow them was just to do a whole bunch of scouring the internet, social media, government accounts, all kinds of stuff. And then over a consistent period of time, we were able to find a video of one of the North Koreans at a ceremony. And pictures of the statues and pictures of one of the North Koreans at a meeting with government officials. But actually, none of this happened in chronological order. In fact, we got another tip off that we might want to look at this particular city in the DRC. And when we did, we found that government officials were meeting with the North Koreans and they were actually being pretty open about it, posting things to Twitter, Facebook, etc. The highlight was this local news story about a building project in the middle of a roundabout, a traffic circle in the DRC. We obtained an interview that Wang Kilsu gave to uh, a local media outlet. And you can see in the report a handful of local officials from Kowesi, this mining city, and these two North Koreans, who they come to know as Wan Kalsu and Pak Wasong. They're both wearing hard hats and yellow vests. These guys are, they're not forced labor. These are actually, Pak Wasong and Wan Kilsu are experts. They're artisans, they're trained engineers. There have been incidents of forced North Korean laborers in Africa before. But you can see evidence that these are craftsmen in this video, John says. For a moment, Wang Kilsu faces the camera. Wan Kalsu, identified as Huang, a Korean entrepreneur, is standing in front of what looks like ongoing construction. He explains that he and his company are working to make the city more beautiful. And he's speaking in French, and he's quite good at it, which implies that he's been trained at some sort of specialty school in Pyongyang. So not low-skilled laborers. These are guys who are important to North Korean revenue generation abroad, quite important. And the people John's spoken with say Wan Kalsu and his colleague would be paid accordingly. I would say that these guys probably do make a pretty good penny on these operations, probably enough to really benefit their family back home and, and to give them a cushy lifestyle, which is, of course, good, especially in a country where there are famines and a lot of people are really living in dire circumstances. But you also have to look at the other side of that, which is where is the rest of the money going? And most of that money will be going to government coffers in some way, and then money that ends up in government coffers, by and large, is used to support priority programs. And that's where the real concern comes. Even something as peripheral as building a statue in the middle of nowhere in the DRC could have implications for peace and security throughout the world. And it might in some way be used to support anything from weapons program, might be used to acquire some sort of technology that North Korea is prohibited from obtaining. Or it could just go to something as banal by comparison as serving up a lobster dinner for some party official. Elites in Pyongyang, yeah. And exactly. This is government contracts. So this is public money from one country going towards 
state coffers of North Korea, which is one of the most repressive, brutal regimes in in history. So yeah, it, it is a big deal. Which is really just a mind-boggling story of globalization gone awry. So the statues really are the physical manifestation of this transaction. But where most of the excitement is happening is in these bank accounts. Dollar bank accounts operated by a North Korean company in the DRC. So they go in, they start this bank account, which is a no-no because that violated sanctions. But then what did they do with that bank account? They use the bank account, from what we can tell, to order materials, pay their employees. So just regular business stuff, mostly. But business stuff in dollars. The bottom line is a business a business bank account is an essential thing to have if you're running a business. And in the DRC, if you're a business more than likely you're going to need to deal in dollars because something like 90% of all the transactions that occur in the country are done in U.S. dollars. And the one country or one of the, the toughest countries to deal in dollars is North Korea because they've been sanctioned specifically by the U.S. government. Yeah, somebody described the sanctions as being biblical. They're just enormous and so enormous it's difficult to comprehend. Like any kind of activity you can imagine has been prohibited or, or there have been some sort of restrictions put on it. If you put a North Korean passport in front of them on which it says this person is, was born in Pyongyang and it pretty clearly says Democratic People's Republic of Korea, most bankers are just going to, out of hand, say no. We cannot offer you any services. But things went a little better for Wang Kalsu and his friend Pak Wasong. Yeah. So there's an older gentleman who is the majority shareholder in this company called Kongo Akonde, Pak Wasong. He was the other North Korean in that local news clip. And from what we can tell, he's something like a a sculptor, an architect, perhaps, maybe a fine artist. He came to the DRC in late February, and then that's when we had this bank account get set up. We were able to identify that these guys won contracts to do a number of things, but namely to build statues in the main roundabout in the southeast of Congo called Kolwezi. The statues are built now. And if you do a Google map search for Kolwezi, pictures of the whole project are the first thing to appear. Kolwezi's a mining town, and that's clearly the theme of this whole project. It's pretty elaborate. Most of the roundabouts where I am are not that elaborate. This is more <laughs> like a showpiece roundabout for sure. You look at it and it tells the story of the city in which it was built. So it's a bunch of guys, uh, a couple guys carrying pickaxes and shows something that looks like a a heavy truck that would carry, or there's gardens, there's all these kinds of things. So it's really, it's a showpiece for the city. It looks North Korean, doesn't it? I did get some feedback from people who are a bit more familiar with North Korean, North Korean art than me. And what they said was that this followed the, I think the term was social realist aesthetic. But yeah, this does fit a particular North Korean aesthetic. North Korean artists and artisans have a reputation for being really cheap and doing good work. But Kongo Akande is new to the North Korean statue space. Their reputation rests on the reputation of their predecessors. And if you know anything about this industry, you've heard of Monsidae, the godfathers of North Korean statues. It's over a dozen countries where this company, Monsudae, oversees projects, which is the best-known North Korean statue and architectural firm that has made a cottage industry out of building these very large, shiny bronze, imposing statues that are very much in the form of what you would see in Pyongyang, transplanted into various countries in Africa. There's a statue of 
President Kabila in Kinshasa, and he looks like Kim Jong-il from the head down, and then it's just his head on top of it. <laughs> so it seems like they have almost like a rubric that they work with, and then they just change the head sometimes. <laughs> yeah, some of the statues are quite imposing. Just kind of interesting, the statues that these guys built were imposing, but maybe a little bit smaller than what Mansude Overseas Projects has built. The largest statue in Africa. African Renaissance, it's in Dakar, Senegal. I don't remember how tall it is, but you know, it's, it's absolutely enormous. It's the size of a medium-sized building. And it's a Mansude. They look very authoritarian. They look very intimidating. That seems to be their style. Yeah, and one of the reasons why this is significant is these statues started becoming one of their top export businesses. It was really a thriving part of the economy. It was a way to bring money back to the North Koreans. And then this public art got sanctioned. And we saw the the statue export business drop off. And now it seems like it's back. So there's a group of UN experts who look at this kind of stuff, look at sanctions violations by the North Koreans. And they just put a report out where they identified some activity by Mansude in Senegal, actually, in violation of UN and US sanctions. So Mansude seems to have been pretty well hobbled by these sanctions. But the guys we were looking at, Congo Akonde, they seem to be able to operate with fairly little notice. John and his team did notice, though. And after a lot of digging, this is what they found. We and then the UN also came to the same conclusion this company is a, a front for a North Korean state-owned company that goes by the name of Korea Beko Trading Corporation. And Beko means white tiger. It uses a white tiger, a fierce white tiger logo on top of a stylized globe. They've been operating before the time when the sanctions against North Koreans building statues abroad were put into place, up until basically we wrote our report about them. Okay, so Kangwa Kande is white tiger, a North Korean state-owned company. But what about their business model? How does it work? They're using a passport that for anybody who's an expert in North Korea, they'll understand that there's an implied link to the state, White Tiger Trading, Korea Beko Trading Corporation. A state-owned company that according to some art experts who've dealt in North Korean art, may actually be controlled by the North Korean People's Army. This White Tiger company, it seems like they send in two to five guys and then they employ almost exclusively local laborers to do the actual work. So their footprint is actually pretty small. So I'm not sure if we hadn't written this report about them, if they wouldn't have just continued doing what they're doing without really any hindrance at all. We also found that the same guys who were operating in the DRC had been operating in Cameroon. And then we found this company, White Tiger, had been operating in a pretty big swath of West and Central Africa. So maybe not that small. But was there really something illicit going on? Yeah. So we obtained one of the documents indicating that Congo Akonde had been granted a U.S. dollar bank account at this bank, Afriland First. And in this document we found, the Congolese bank said, basically, if you need to do dollar and euro transactions abroad, here's what we call a payable through account via our partner, BMCE, in Paris that you can use. We don't know if they ended up sending money abroad, but they had that at their disposal. And that just raises a bigger question of what else might have been getting processed via accounts at Afriland and maybe ultimately getting handled by its correspondent banking partners 
Right, because this isn't the sum total of all the violations. You just stumbled across this. Yeah, there have been a number of, I would say, pretty damaging public revelations about the DRC banking sector. So this feels a little whack-a-mole, like Mansuday gets sanctioned, everyone knows about it, but something else pops up. I think that speaks a lot to the enforcement of these sanctions programs in North Korea. There was an interesting interview this press outlet in the DRC did with one of the heads of that bank in the DRC in response to our reports. This particular manager said, listen, I don't understand why I can't give these guys a bank account. You sanction a person, a company, but not a country. And I found that really shocking because it really just does say, yeah, if you're a North Korean, we're open for business. Former President Trump talked about a maximum pressure strategy, and it sounds like it would be very effective, but in the end, the enforcement is only as useful as the weakest link. And in this case, there was really no resistance whatsoever. So you tried to get a response from all parties involved. Unsurprisingly, the North Koreans were not keen to talk to us, and the Congolese authorities who might have had something to hide also were not keen to talk to us. What did White Tiger say? Yeah, so we reached out to their main office in Pyongyang and did not get a response. We also tried to contact the guys who were operating the DRC, and they did not respond either. But we did almost get to the point where we could talk to a representative of, we think, White Tiger in another country. But it seemed like they were really only interested in talking to me when they thought that I might be actually paying them to do something. But I think as soon as they realized that A, I was not trying to buy something, and B, that I was most likely based in a Western jurisdiction. Let's just say that the line went cold. And part of what John and his NGO, The Century, do is provide recommendations on how to prevent this from happening again. What we really recommended was that government entities, private institutions like banks, go out and search for White Tiger, search for Congo Akonde, search for these names, like try to find if these people have in some way infiltrated your systems. We also just recommended that more broadly, these global banks that are doing a lot of processing of U.S. dollar payments or U.N. entities, U.S. government entities, et cetera, try to make that a little bit more concerted regional effort to help authorities from Mali all the way to Rwanda on their sanctions enforcement. And John says the U.N. group working on North Korean sanctions, they had some ideas, too. So based in part on our work, they made a recommendation that the U.N. Security Council impose sanctions by name on Pak Wasong and Wong Kil Su. And then they also recommended that the U.N. Security Council impose sanctions on Korea Beko Trading Corporation. So now if you know, the sanctions are adopted, you've got Mansude Overseas Projects, which was the, the big dog in that market, has been sanctioned for some time. Now the little brother, Korea Beko Trading Corporation, will also be sanctioned by name. But again, if, if the company name doesn't say Korea Beko Trading Corporation, are they just going to give the, the bank account anyway? So it sounds like in four years, we're going to be back here talking about a new company that exports <laughs> statues. <laughs> it could very well be. That's one thing that I think if you talk to any sanctions expert, they'll say is that one of the misconceptions about sanctions is that they're static. 
people and companies that are sanctioned typically try to find ways to continue doing what they were doing prior to the imposition of sanctions. Like you know, maybe they were using Bill as their front man before and now they go to Joe or they change up the company name slightly. So if we're not here in four years talking about a different North Korean company operating in Central Africa, then I'll be surprised. And that's The Take. Today's episode was produced by Amy Walters with Nagin Oliayi, Priyanka Tilvey, Ney Alvarez, Alexandra Locke, Dina Kisba, Malika Bilal, and me, Kevin Hurton, in for Malika Bilal. Alex Roldan is our sound designer, Thomas Fenton is our script editor, and Stacey Samuel is our executive producer. We'll be back on Wednesday.